Romans chapter 3 to the passage that was read for us. Romans chapter 3. And uh, if you've been follow along, following along, all of these uh, messages are on the church website. So you can log in over there and, and listen to the series in Romans. Uh, we're uh, at the end of chapter 3 uh, this morning. We're in a crucial section in Romans. All of it is the word of God. All of it is crucial. But this particularly is crucial in the sense that it finally brings us to a place to help us understand how a person is saved. So if you read from Romans chapter 1 verse 18 through to chapter 3 verse 20, just as a big chunk, you will see that you know, Paul and the scriptures are explaining to us how every single human being, regardless of their ethnicity or background, whether they were Jew or Gentile, it didn't matter, every single human being was, had come short of the glory of God. They were in sin. And he says in Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. Which is an astounding indictment on humanity, isn't it? And you and I might feel, you know, pretty good about ourselves. We might feel quite confident about who we are, but we've got to have a humble approach and understanding when we look at scripture like this to understand that all of us, not, a, not, not, not one of us is spared from this, that we have come short of the glory of God. And so human beings in that sense have a huge problem, a massive problem. The world has a huge problem and we call it sin. We're born with it, each one of us. None of us can escape its clutches. It infects and affects everything, corrupting the very nature of a person so that every inclination of the human heart is evil. You know, we have to work hard to do good. Think about that, right? We have to actually work hard to do good. We don't have to think too much about sin and wickedness and evil. That kind of almost comes naturally to us. And I speak about this from personal experience. You would be able to understand that as well. And it is our sin that separates us from God, leaving us in a state of enmity with God and estrangement from Him. Now one possible way to set things right is if we can keep God's law. That's one possible way to set things right. But the, you know that, that you know, that's impossible. None of us are able to do that. None of us are able to help ourselves in that sense and keep God's law. I remember when our kids were uh, tiny, you know, little baby infants, Hannah and Michelle and the other, really small. Uh, they were completely dependent on us for everything. Completely dependent on us for everything. They simply couldn't do anything on their own. They couldn't eat. And those of you who are parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They couldn't drink. They couldn't change their clothes, they couldn't walk around, uh, they couldn't talk, they couldn't sleep without some help, they couldn't bathe without some help, uh, completely, totally dependent on us. And so we were hands-on as parents at that stage in their life, helping them out with everything. And I, I was thinking about that and I, you know, and I know it's a, it's a very lovely analogy, but I'm making a, a point about how our sin nature puts us in a position like that where we are totally unable to help ourselves. And I just use that analogy. Maybe it help you understand the, the inability that we have to save ourselves. 
the inability that we have to go before God and say, Lord, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm good, I'm righteous, I've put it all together. We in fact need help from outside. We are totally dependent on God for his help to carry us through. And this is where God, as a loving father, steps right in. With his great love for us, he begins his work of saving us. And so it is God who justifies us or places us in a right relationship with himself through Christ. But it is more than placing us. You can keep going forward, uh, Ethan, with the slides. I think I've got some of these points, right? God justifies us or places us in a right relationship with himself through Christ. But it is more than placing us in a right relation, right standing with himself. He declares us righteous in his sight, clothed with the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You got that? I know it's very heavy. It's kind of... Try and stay with me on this. God clothes us with the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, gives us all the rights and the privileges of sonship. That's what he gives us in his son, Jesus Christ. You know, it's like becoming a naturalized citizen of a country. When you receive citizenship, so you go to another country and you live there for some time and you receive citizenship of that country, governments take a long time to give citizenship out. They want to check you out. They want to make sure that you, you, know, you fit in and that you fulfill all of those certain criteria that they have. And when they give it to you, they give it to you fully. They give you all the rights and the privileges that every other citizen in the country has. That's what it means to receive citizenship. You know, the Bible even speaks of a believer as being a citizen of heaven. That's there in Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 where our citizenship is in heaven. You know, in, in India, you can receive uh, Indian citizenship only if you forfeit the citizenship of another country. I don't know if other countries do this. India does it. According to our constitution, you cannot be a citizen of two countries. I like that. I think it's a biblical citizenship. Makes sense, isn't it? You can't be in two countries. Take that heavenly idea of, uh, to consider over here. In Colossians 1.13, Paul talks about how God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. A heavenly citizenship that God has given to us. And with that comes all the rights and the privileges of that citizen. That sonship, that daughtership, if you want to think of it like that, God gives it to us. He bestows it on us. That's amazing what happens in our salvation. When God covers us, when he clothes us anew with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this morning we continue from uh, chapter 3 verses 21 to 31. Uh, and we're looking at you know, these 11 verses, which I think are the most succinct description and explanation of the gospel of Christ. And I would encourage you to try and read over it, understand it, grasp it, even memorize it, because it's so uh, profound and succinct in the way it describes uh, what Christ has done for us, what God has done for us in Christ. Now, two weeks ago, 
we talked about two aspects from this passage of how God justifies us. Number one, he justifies us apart from the law. We're not justified by keeping the law because none of us can do that. We're justified by God apart from keeping the law. Okay, that's important. And so God declares us righteous uh, by his own justifying work in our lives, his own declaration over us because of our faith in Christ. Which brings us to the second one, that God declares us righteous through our faith in Jesus. That was the second point that we talked about. He declares us, he justifies us by faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, and so that's the two things. Go back and listen to that message. But we're going to pick up from there and we're going to continue to look at Romans chapter 3 uh, from verse 23 onwards, right? Uh, so we're going to move forward. Uh, let me tell you the three points for this morning. Uh, number one, he justifies us by his grace as a gift. Number two, he justifies us while upholding his righteousness. And number three, he justifies everyone who believes in his son. Number one, he justifies us by his grace as a gift. As a gift. Romans chapter 3 verses 23 and 24, it says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No argument there. We talked about this already. Verse 24, And are justified... By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You got that? Now notice first of all that all have sinned. What I talked about already it goes back to the earlier part of chapter 3. And you know uh, several uh, the rest of the earlier part of Romans as well. Where it's clear that all have sinned and come short of God's glory. And then he says that people are justified by his grace as a gift by his grace as a gift not all people but only those who believe he talks about that before he's going to talk about that after it as well only those who believe everyone is welcome to believe but only those who believe are justified and are are recipients of god's grace as a gift now, I love that word grace, one of my favorite words in the Bible, and hopefully yours as well. It's, an, it's a profound word. You know, the word grace means what? Undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. That's what the word grace means. And we may have experienced it in small ways in our relationships between people. Right? We have favor that we, that we have received from someone where we don't deserve it, but they are Give gracious to us. I remember my Hindi teachers in school. My goodness. You know, the passing mark was 33. I was in like 29 or something. But I somehow got 34. It was always grace. There was no question about it. I think for math as well. Yeah, don't tell anybody that. But yes, you know, some of those things. But that's what grace is. When you get undeserved favor, you don't deserve it. But someone just kind of pushes you along. That's what grace is. And with God, that grace is at a whole different level altogether. Because God sees us through and through absolutely everything that even we don't see on Sunday mornings. My goodness, we dress up well on Sunday mornings, isn't it? 
We don't really know what's going on in our lives, but God sees it through and through. Every thought and every intention of our hearts, God sees it through and through. And yet, God is gracious toward us. Undeserved favor. You know, the biblical word for forgiveness is karizomai, which actually comes from the word uh, for grace, which is charis. They're related words. So forgiveness is the giving of grace. It's the giving of grace. It's the giving of undeserved favor. By the way, that's the thing that makes relationships work. Even at our human level, we do not operate by law. We operate by grace. Think about that for a moment. Even at a human level. If at a human level we strictly operated by law all the time, none of us would be able to get along. We wouldn't. You wouldn't be able to live with your spouse if you simply operated by law all the time. We are always exercising grace. We're always giving favor. Hopefully we are. And that's what makes relationships work. And God has done that for us. This undeserved favor in his son. Paul calls it a gift because it isn't something that we have earned. It isn't something that we deserve. We cannot earn God's justification. We receive it by grace as a gift. And what a gift it is, isn't it? No wonder the woman in Luke chapter 7 verse 36 had the boldness and the confidence to walk into that room full of men, some of them Pharisees, and go straight up to Jesus and fall before him. And she wiped his feet with that expensive ointment because she knew how much she had been forgiven. She knew how Jesus looked at her, not with judgment and condemnation, but with grace. His eyes were different in the way he looked at her. Not like all the other men sitting around over there saying, Why, who is she? This And she had this reputation of being a sinful woman. What a tag to wear, isn't it? Everybody knew she was a sinful woman. But Jesus looked at her with grace. And she walked in there and she went to the one person that mattered the most. Jesus. Because he looked with grace. And when she realized how much she had been forgiven... She was able to love more. That's what Jesus says. That's why she loves more. Because she recognizes how much she has been forgiven. You know, the problem is that sometimes we struggle with that. And I feel like many of us would be the people sitting on the sides. Looking at that woman and saying, Oof, Jesus, do you know who she is? Do you know what the reputation is that she has? And I think we do that because we have a high view of ourselves. We have a high view. We have an inflated view of who we are and how good we are, so to speak. As if God should be pleased that he has us and not the other way around. You know, we have a dear friend um, who was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor last year. Uh, some of you know her maybe, I don't know, I, I won't mention her name though, but she's been undergoing intensive treatment ever since her diagnosis. Now the survival time for this kind of a cancer is about two years, that's what they've told her. She's a mom with two young kids, you know, young family, but they basically told her two years and we just had a video call with them a few weeks ago and it was 
stunning to hear these things you know just you, to know that your life is you know somewhat expected to be 2 to 2 and a half years at the most and what she would give to be completely free of that cancer to live a full life now she's doing well at the moment and her treatment seems to be helping and you know it seems good the prognosis and and all of those things but if she could give she if she could be given the gift of being cancer free that's what you know her husband and her even communicated to us that would be the most amazing gift imagine the gratitude that she would feel and i use this again as a as an illustration to illustrate what it means to be set free i don't know if we understand that we have so much freedom we have an overdose of freedom that i don't know if we understand what it means to actually be set free what it means to have something taken off for us to have that kind of a release in that sense and i don't know if we recognize you know how invasive and pervasive sin is in our life and how much it controls our very thoughts and our intentions and how much of a cancer it is in us and how much god has done for us in christ to set us free from it to remove us from having to carry the weight and the burden of sin itself to be like christian in the pilgrim's progress that when he got to the cross that burden just fell off you remember that story if you know that story that massive burden of sin on his back that he was carrying just fell off when he went to the cross god does it for us freely through his son jesus how does god justify us look at the end of verse 24 through the redemption that is in christ jesus and i want you to notice that very carefully this redemption is available in christ jesus in christ jesus you know peter will be preaching in acts chapter 4 verse 12 and he says over there he says there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved there is salvation in no one else except in jesus paul in first timothy chapter 2 verse 5 he says for there is one god and there is one mediator between god and men the man christ jesus one god and one mediator between god and men the man christ jesus that's important for us how does god justify us through his son the one way of being justified the one way of salvation jesus christ now let's move on to the next point over here all right because while our salvation is free to us we talked about this it's a free gift you happy with that you got to be happy with that right it's a free gift to us it was costly to god immensely costly to god he paid a huge price for it through the death of his son which brings us to the second point he justifies us while upholding his righteousness while upholding his righteousness he justifies us romans 325 says this jesus 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Right, let me just go back uh, to the previous verse over here uh, that says, um, the, and, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now this is a little bit heavy over here, so stick with me, okay? I'm, I'm going to try and make it as palatable as possible. Now first of all, I want you to notice over here that God put forward, put forward the Lord Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. What does that even mean? Propitiation, big word. Some of your Bibles say, and, and you know, Jyoti's Bible says the sacrifice of atonement or atoning sacrifice, which is how some translations translate that word. That word means to propitiate or to satisfy, that's an easier word to understand, to satisfy the righteous anger of God against sin. God is righteously angry about sin. And I, I don't think you and I can say, oh, God is angry. That doesn't sound like a God I want to know. No, no. You and I are angry about sin. Tell me you're not. When you see injustice, someone sent me a video of a Dalit girl being beaten up, I think in Madhya Pradesh or somewhere, just in this past week, because she wanted to participate in some rituals. And they were beating her up brutally. And I was angry when I saw it. That's injustice. That's sin. And you too feel anger when you see sin and injustice, don't you? How much more is God right to be angry about sin? How much more does God have every reason to look down from heaven and to see the sin and the brokenness and the permissive, pervasiveness of it and feel anger towards it? It's a righteous anger on God's part. But to propitiate means to satisfy the requirements of God's righteous anger. To propitiate means to satisfy the requirements of God's righteous anger. The Lord Jesus was the sacrifice that satisfied God's righteous wrath and removed our sins. Does that make sense? Such an important concept in the Bible. This word propitiation is used four times in the New Testament to speak of the idea of God's righteous anger being satisfied. You see, God doesn't lower his holy standards to accommodate us. He doesn't do that. The way God preserves his righteousness or his holiness is by paying for sin through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can say that sin went unpunished in that sense. Even more specifically, we can say that God accepted Christ's death as atonement for our sin. Let me try and illustrate it in this way. Think of a courtroom with a judge and the accuser and the accused. And the person on trial, the accused person, owes 10 lakhs of rupees to the accuser in that courtroom. What would you think if the judge said to the accuser, or, or the accuser, forgive this person 
and let's close this case and all go home what would you think about that and nothing is to be paid back that would be unjust right it would be unjust of the judge to do that that would be a way of accommodating wrongdoing i tell you everybody is going to try the same thing in the future because there's no consequence if you like for sin or what if the judge insisted that the accused pay the 10 lakhs back he says you got to pay it you owe it you've you've committed a crime you owe it you got to pay it back that would be a righteous judgment wouldn't it be because sin is being punished the law is being upheld and the injured party gets their money back that would be righteous judgment but imagine that the accused person doesn't have the means to pay it they say judge but i can't do it i don't have it and imagine that this judge gets up and he pays it on behalf of the accused that's what god has done for us in christ he pays what we owe and in that way the injured party receives justice god's and and here's the crucial thing in the gospel god is ultimately the one who is has been um the one who is who whom we have wronged and the one who is the judge also and so in this way god when he pays for our sin he satisfies the requirements of the law of his righteous judgment his righteous anger in that sense and he appeases it god is the judge and ultimately also the person against whom all sin is committed and so in the heavenly courtroom the judge and the injured party come together to pay for the sin of the accused which is us so that we are forgiven sin is paid for and god's law is upheld i don't know if that helped at all but you know hopefully it will as you think about it a little bit more but let's come to the rest of verses 25 and 26 and it tells us that god does this this propitiation this this offering of his son to satisfy the requirements of his law in that sense uh he does this for sins that were committed before the cross and for sins that were committed after the cross basically all sin over all time is covered for in the cross of the lord jesus christ let me read these verses to you verses 25 and 26 it says this was to show god's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins meaning it was to show that god is in fact a righteous judge that he passed over former sins he didn't just he didn't just uh, discard them he let them be patiently until the cross of christ that's what he says in this verse and then in verse 26 it says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus and so since before the cross since after the cross are all covered by cross christ's atoning work on the cross that's huge it extends not only to past sins 
and not only to present sins, but for all sins, Christ's work on the cross is efficacious. It is able to cover all of those sins. That's amazing for us to think about. And so those before the cross are also justified by Christ's work on the cross. And so also those after the cross, which is us. Which brings us to our third and final point. And I'll spend a couple of minutes on this, not long. But the third one is that he justifies everyone who believes in his son. He justifies everyone who believes in his son. Now Paul re-emphasizes his previous points in the last few verses in this chapter. First, he makes it clear that there is no grounds whatsoever for boasting. So you come with me to the end of chapter 3. He says in verse 27, Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. We can't boast. We can't say, Lord, I'm better than, or I'm, look at how good I am. We're all saved by faith. Not by our works. Not by our goodness in that sense. Someone said it well when they said, the only thing, listen to this carefully, I like this one, the only thing that we bring to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. I like it. It's so succinct, so profound. The only thing we bring to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. God is the one who saves us through and through. We've got to come to him in faith. Now verses 28 to 30 makes it clear once again that both Jews and Gentiles, circumcised and uncircumcised, are justified or declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. Now this is important for us because, you know, we might say, what do I have to do with the Jews? I have no argument about that. No, no. But we, we might think like the Jews do. We might think that somehow if I'm good enough, you know, I'll get into heaven. No. No one gets into heaven. No one gets back into a right relationship with God by being good enough. You never make it that way. And there are theological systems, even in the church and in the larger church, so to speak, that speak about faith, but they also add these other things and say you've got to do these things as well. We do that to each other, the way we judge each other. And you know, such and such person dresses like this, oh, they can't be a Christian, no chance. Such and such person, you know, speaks like this, no, no chance they can be a Christian. So we kind of write people off based on some of these practices that they might have. Now there's no question about the fact that we all pursue holiness. God calls us to pursue holiness, to be Christ-like, no question about that. But no one gets into heaven based on how they dress. No one gets into heaven based on how they talk or their language or their ethnicity or the kind of food that they eat or whether they fast five times a day or ten times a year or they read their Bible a hundred times. Nobody gets into heaven based on those things. We get into heaven based on the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ and His merit alone. That is applied to us by our faith in him and based on that God welcomes us into an eternal relationship with himself sealed by the Holy Spirit forever that's amazing isn't it and it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile if it doesn't matter if you're religious or non-religious in that sense all of us are called to faith in Jesus Christ to be saved 
It's massive for us. Obedience to the law was never a means of salvation because it is impossible to keep God's law perfectly. You know, James 2.10 says this, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Or Galatians 3.10 says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. If you don't keep all things, you're under a curse. And I emphasize that again because there's only one way that we are saved. And that is by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His merit and our faith in Him. And I want to leave that with you uh, this morning as you consider these things. And maybe just bow your heads for a moment. You know, and we, if there are any among you who are not sure about your salvation... Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home that doesn't save you. Maybe you've gone to church all your life. That too doesn't save you. Maybe you've sung on the worship team or you've done some ministry in the church. Even that doesn't save you. What saves you is your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ's work on your behalf. Maybe this morning is an opportunity for you to seriously consider the state of your soul, the condition of your soul, and where you're going to spend eternity. And to seriously think about that. And not just treat it as something light, because God will punish sin. God will deal with sin. And either He has done it for you by making His Son the atoning sacrifice, Jesus willingly became the atoning sacrifice or you will have to pay it for yourself. And the, the encouragement, the exhortation, the urge of scripture and of God is that all of us would turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and in faith for the salvation of our souls and for our eternity with God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word to us this morning. I know that you're speaking to your people and there are things that you will say to each person over here. And I pray for that work of salvation in every heart and I pray for your work of sanctification in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.